Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to have with me today Hannah Wostick, who is a recent PhD graduate from Stanford University in bioengineering. She has worked with Justin Sonnenberg to study the intersection of the microbiome and the immune system, and she's currently the CEO and co-founder of Interface Biosciences, which is a biotech company that looks at the treatment of inflammatory disease by leveraging the microbiome. Hi, Hannah. Welcome. Hi, Elisa. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I think that was the nicest thing you've ever said to me. Wow. Okay. You wrote that yourself. So. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So let's start off. What is fermentation? Yeah, I love this question because I used to hate it and now I have a response for it. So fermented foods, when I looked up the definition the first time of what fermented foods actually are, because I think they are this kind of mysterious thing that people just assume they know what they are. But when you actually think about it deeper, you're, actually, you're like, oh, what? is a fermented food. So the first time I Googled it, I found this definition that said, fermented foods are defined as foods or beverages produced through controlled microbial growth and the conversion of food components through enzymatic action. And I feel like, you know, you and I have talked about fermented foods at, you know, at length and get really excited about it. And I felt like this definition of fermented foods just didn't capture like the excitement and the magic that I felt when you talked about them or, you know, we had our conversations about it. So I think one of the ways that I like to think about fermented foods comes from when we did that home ferment of kefir and we did, so Aliza and I worked together in, in Sonnenberg lab and we were looking at a time course of fermentation. And so that was one of the first times I've ever made kefir before. Uh, so it's based off of milk. So you take a glass of milk and uh, you just set it out at room temperature and you put a really greasy, sticky, gross clump of kefir grains in it. And you just let it sit in a dark cabinet for, you know, three days. And so I remember setting that up and thinking, this is really weird. Like if I had just set out a glass of milk on in my cupboard and closed it and, you know, three days later opened it up, it would smell rancid. And, you know, I would probably have a gag reflex. And if I drank it, I would get sick. Um, but I'm doing this right now with kefir grains and the knowledge that it's going to smell good, maybe a little cheesy when I get it out. And the research that, you know, Lisa and I are working on is, is saying that it would actually make us healthier, reduce inflammation. And so that difference between spoiled glass of milk and a glass of kefir after three days at room temperature is what I like to imprecisely define as what fermented foods are to me. Cool. So you recently published a paper, right, called Gut Microbiota-Targeted Diet Modulates Human Immune Status that was recently published in Cell, which for those who don't know, is a very prestigious science publication. Uh, so I wanted to hear more about the paper, if you want to explain what the background is, how you came to asking these questions, and what the major takeaways are. Sure, yeah. So that paper, um, yeah, a little bit of a spoiler of what I had talked about in terms of like kefir making you feel healthier. Uh, my introduction to fermented foods was actually just came from uh, an interest in wanting to study how the microbiome and the immune system interact with each other. So I came to Stanford wanting to, you know, study these two systems uh, from a biochemical molecular lens, because that was my experience previously. The tools to study the microbiome in, in high throughput, even like five years ago, just didn't exist. So the study that was going ongoing when, when I ended up joining Sonnenberg Lab was a different way of studying the axis of the microbiome and immune system by using diet, human, human diet. So 
Um, this study in particular that the paper was based on was the brainchild of Justin Sonnenberg and Christopher Gardner at Stanford. Justin is a, a tenure professor at Stanford in microbiology and immunology department. Christopher, similarly, professor in preventative medicine and really focuses on nutrition and diet. And so the idea behind the study was to study uh, the diet microbiome immune axis with the hope of one, making people healthier through a, a simple dietary shift with either high fermented foods or high fiber foods, and then uh, two, study the interaction between the microbiome and the immune system. Uh, so what I was kind of getting at before is that uh, the my human microbiome is incredibly difficult to study in traditional models and in mice models because it's so complex. The immune system in mice is obviously very different from humans. When you add on the you know, complexity and malleability of the microbiome, it's just really difficult to glean information uh, between the two that's able to translate from mice to humans. Um, so on the other hand, you know, we use mice so often in basic research because we can't study drugs uh, in humans for, for obvious safety reasons. And so the idea behind this study was that we're able to go straight into humans um, by using an intervention that doesn't need to be approved by the FDA. And so microbiome is very malleable. Like I said before, you're able to change it using diet. And so we're using diet as the method of change for the microbiome, which by extension, will we hypothesize would change the immune system. So from a personal standpoint, I came into this study during my rotation back in Sonnenberg Lab in 2018. And it was already, um, all of the data had, for the most part, been, or all the samples had been collected. The study had been run. It was all of this data. And it was my job, along with uh, then postdoc Gabby Fragidakis, how are we going to wrangle this into something that's not just a data dump? Like, this is a really special study. We need to craft a narrative that is, first of all, biologically accurate and relevant, um, too important to, you know, human human studies and human microbiome, human immune system, and then three, innovative. Like, how are we pushing the field? Because we really want to define how future studies will be run, both um, at a study standpoint and also as an analysis standpoint. And so what were the key takeaways? The key takeaways from the study standpoint is that there have been previous work showing that diet is able to reproducibly change the microbiome, specifically in short-term uh, short-term and also long-term ways. Uh, there's occasionally they'll have one or two measures of host health, whether that be uh, glucose tolerance, weight gain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there really hadn't been a study um, prior to this that showed um, immune status and, and deep profiling of how a dietary study is able to change the immune system. And a big reason for this is that people just didn't think it would be able to happen. Um, so grant funding, they're just, it's too risky, um, is, is a lot of the narrative of like dietary studies. You're not going to see anything. People are, people are human, right? And they're not going to eat the right things that you want them to. You're not going to be able to measure any changes. Um, and so it was really just like the belief in diet on Christopher Gardner's side and belief in the microbiome on Justin's side that we would be able to see these profound changes in the immune system. And so from there, it was like getting the money, which was really philanthropic donations from people in the Bay Area that are very interested in this, honestly have deep pockets and want to be able to, you know, pave this area of science through like citizen scientists, through citizen science work. So it was funded by philanthropic donations, and then looked at not only, you know, one or two parameters of immune health, but over 200 different inflammatory markers that 
gave a really comprehensive look of what the immune system looks like and is it able to be perturbed by a dietary intervention and by extension, the microbiome. Uh, so that was one of them. Uh, the first study that was as comprehensive as it was. And then on the results side, um, what we found is that a diet high in fermented foods, in our study, we had six servings of more during the highest levels of consumption was able to A, increase microbiome diversity, so increase the number of unique species in your gut, and then B, improve immune status by decreasing a number of different inflammatory um, inflammatory markers. So I talked about before, we had, you know, we measured over 200 different immune parameters. We wanted to have trends. Like we don't want to rabbit hole ourselves into one or two markers of inflammation because we don't understand the immune system such that we can just measure one thing and get a status of how healthy it is. Uh, so by having this comprehensive view of all of the immune parameters that we're able to measure, we saw a 19 uh, decreased inflammatory proteins and 13 decreased um, immune cell signaling pathways. And so this is really significant because uh, we do see these trends of people becoming uh, uh, healthier in terms of like an immune status that's lower in, in inflammation. So that was the big takeaway that everyone is, is talking about right now. It's the first time that someone was able to show fermented foods uh, improve immune status. A second takeaway that I like to say, even though this got literally no attention, is the high fiber diet in our study, we had 40 grams or more a day in the highest consumption, showed a mixed response. So in general, participants, some participants did improve their immune status with lower levels of inflammation, uh, but they had to have a high level of microbiome diversity to start with. So the more uh, microbes unique ecosystem they had in their gut before the study started, the better they seemed to respond to it, uh, which really suggests that a hybrid between high fiber and high fermented food diet might have the, the best synergistic effects. And they're, they're looking into that now. Very, very cool. Um, so one thing I want to point out, which is, could you explain the difference between an immunosuppressive phenotype and a decrease in markers of inflammation? Um, because I guess immunosuppression would not necessarily be good all the time. And you're yeah, also yeah. looking at this in healthy individuals and not people with IBS or some sort of autoimmune disorder. And because this is a microbiome immune paper, there might be some people that interpret it as, well, these are good foods for people with some sort of inflammatory disease because it led to a decrease of inflammation. But that's not really the takeaway, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really, really important point uh, to, to make. So our study was only in healthy adults. And immune suppression and anti-inflammatory effects are very different because, I mean, inflammation gets a bad rap and this paper doesn't help it in terms of, you know, you want a balance of inflammation and when you want inflammation is when you have infection or something, you know, if you cut your arm, you eat some, you know, spoiled food, you want your immune system to respond to it so it can, you know, get the pathogen out of there, clear the infection. Uh, the times that you don't want inflammation is when you have chronic disease or chronic inflammation. And so this is on the rise in, in industrialized countries like the United States. Uh, Prediabetes, obesity make up 37 and 40 percent of U.S. adults. And so these are the, um, the chronic diseases that we're seeing that just continue to tick up not only in adults but children as well year after year. And so what we're hoping is more of a preventative sense where if you can decrease these chronic inflammatory signals that you see in these liminal states of disease, um, then can you push the needle back towards health before more serious problems like diabetes, um, IBD, Crohn's, and, and things like that develop. Um, so when you already have inflammation 
that's you know indicative of Crohn's disease or, or UCI and, and whatnot. Um, this study cannot be extrapolated to, to that for sure. Um, that is a completely different. And so, what are the next patient steps cohort if you're and on this project? You know, honestly, have different phenotypes. So, it's it's a really really important part point to make. Yeah, I think the hybrid model between looking at high fiber and high fermented food is a huge one. I think it, the study is just begging for it. If you're, you know, prime your microbiome with fermented foods to increase that diversity to begin with, and then you supplement fiber afterwards, can you see even lower levels of inflammation? Would that be the right model for someone who is in a, in a more inflammatory IBS cohort? I think having IBS, IBD cohorts is insanely important because um, instead of shifting the lens from like a preventative case as opposed to a treatment case, I think is not outside the realm of what fermented foods can do. We're not there yet. And that's either going to be through engineering fermented foods that are enriched in a particular microbe, uh, microbial component. Uh, maybe it's specific types of fermented foods, koji, tempa versus, you know, more popular in the U.S. like yogurts and, and sauerkrauts and kimchis. Um, the diversity of fermented foods is ginormous. So looking at the differences between them, is it the microbes that are in the fermented foods? Is it the metabolites or the small molecules that are being produced? Oh man, there's just endless numbers of questions you could go after. So talking about the probiotics versus metabolites that are made in fermented foods, uh, there is this idea that through fermentation, you're changing the community or the microbial community of fermented foods. You're changing the metabolites that are being produced, but you're also changing the bioavailability of different nutrients that are from the food itself. So what do you think is actually the most beneficial? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's a combination of both, which is a cop-out answer. <laughs> I think it would be naive to say that the probiotics component only are important because that assumes that they engraft in your gut. And I think you need to have the microbial products in addition to the microbes themselves to see the effects because the microbial products interact with the lining of your gut, they enter your systemic circulation, and that's where they get a lot of their immune modulatory effects. Um, so I don't think the probiotics themselves are sufficient to see the immune modulation effects. On the other hand, is it only the metabolites or the products that the microbes are producing? I think that's more likely the case because they're the causal unit, right? So the microbes are a vessel for chemical factories in your gut, but what they're actually producing is what's causing the effects. I don't know if you just, you know, had sterilized sauerkraut brine or cooked kimchi that, you know, killed all the microbes, if that would have the same effects. I don't know. Um, but I don't think the microbes themselves are sufficient given the, you know, increase in microbial diversity that we saw in this study in the fermented food cohort um, was not the large, large, large majority was not microbes that were actually ingested. It was, um, you know, seemed to bloom a number of different commensals in the gut that were just lower than the levels of detection that we had. And so they're able to create more niches. Um, so whether or not you're able to see that effects with just the microbial products, I don't know. Um, yeah, but I, I think that will be a really hot area of, of research moving forward. Mm -hmm.
And have you changed your diet after working on this paper? Do you get around to eating six servings of fermented foods a day? I will admit that six is hard. Um, I think I try to integrate it into what I already really enjoy eating. So I think the great thing about fermented foods is that they have a ton of flavor. Um, so if you're into sauerkraut or kimchi, those are really great, not just eating on their own, but like adding to sandwiches. You know, they have the texture, they have the flavor component. So I'm making sandwich sandwiches. I always throw uh, kimchi or sauerkraut on it. If I'm having like a rice bowl or something like that, I always add kimchi or sauerkraut on the side. As far as my savory components, I eat tempeh all the time. Um, on the sweeter side, like yogurts, I try to have at least one yogurt a day. Yakult is, you know, there's little... Um, those little yogurts, I consider one of those a serving, even though it's probably not technically right. But those are really easy to, to just pound as well. Um, I probably don't eat six. I would say per day I eat between three and four. Um, but it has definitely changed the way that I eat. I think I was very um, skeptical of dietary studies before joining the lab. And I would not have believed these results unless I literally work with the data with my own hands. And so I'm, I'm definitely on the, on the kimchi train, on the fermented foods train. I was FaceTiming my friend once and she like called me and I was literally in my bathrobe eating a tub of kimchi. So she's like, wow, you are, are a meme of yourself. That's really funny. Uh, so because of this paper, you've actually gotten a few write-ups and there were uh, some really great ones in the New York times. And I noticed that in terms of the comments, you could break the comments down into maybe four categories. And the first was just praise and people sharing their favorite fermented foods. The second category was people commenting on the statistics and that they're saying that, well, you only have 36 participants, 18 per group, and that sample size is just way too small. Then there are the people that saying, oh, well, eating fermented foods is why I don't have cancer anymore, or they helped me treat some sort of disease. Um, and then my favorite group, which was the group of people that are saying, oh, well, now I can drink as much wine or as much beer as I want because it's a fermented food. So could you respond to these last three? So the statistics question, the alternative treatment, and the alcohol. If you were to respond to these people, what would you say? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know if I should read the comments. And then, of course, I read every single one. And uh, roller coaster of emotions, but yeah, on the statistics side, uh, that one was probably the most common that I saw. It was like 18 on each arm. This study doesn't mean anything. Um, my response to that is you have to start somewhere. And I know in an ideal world, we would have a hundred participants and across every single demographic and hundreds of samples. Trust me, I worked with N equals 18. There is no one that wanted this study to be larger more than I wanted this study to be larger. Um, but like I said before, this is a really nascent area of research, like the idea of dietary interventions being in prime time. Like the idea of a dietary intervention like this being in cell is kind of mind-blowing. Um, so in order to get the funding and grant money necessary for you know, financially funding a, a study of hundreds of people, you need to show that there is evidence that it would work. And because, again, mouse models are not a good proxy for seeing if this would translate in humans, starting in humans is no small ask. So 18 people that were able to adhere to the diet through, you know, honestly counseling of a nutritionist multiple times a week, 
that's a huge win for us. Like longitudinal sampling of the of the stool samples for the microbiome processing and the blood samples for the immune processing. You know, you don't get 12 different samples from that many people. You know, like each person was so incredibly ex expensive because they were so deeply studied uh, that this this type of analysis was really necessary to, you know, fingers crossed, our goal is to usher in a lot more studies of this design and with much larger sample sets. So you have to start somewhere is, is my response to that. Everything was statistically significant that we, that we reported. Uh, so even though it, it was a small sample set, uh, if you're talking statistics, it still met the, the, you know, canonical P equals, you know, less than 0.05. Um, as far as alternative treatment, people, you know, swearing this helped me. Um, N equals one is really the basis of a lot of medicine, to be honest. Like if you look at, um, you know, doctors going to conferences and presenting groundbreaking research, it's N equals one. This happened in this one person. How can we cast this? How can we scale this to, to help a lot more people? Uh, so that's kind of similar to the, to the small sample set before. Um, some people swear that it works. It's really difficult, of course, to cast that into it will work for everyone or it's impossible, inappropriate to do that. Um, but I think if people do find that it works for them, some of it's going to be a placebo effect, but there really is some truth there. And so again, this is how science works. And I know like sometimes it can seem anecdotal, uh, but a lot of really important discoveries and research has come out of people anecdotally saying that something worked for them. Um, and then finally, the last one, as far as does beer wine count as fermented foods? Uh, my official opinion on this is that the alcohol probably counteracts any positive effects of the fermented foods. So um, I think this is a way to not change your habits, but just cast them as being healthier. Um, so I don't really, you know, give two thumbs up to that. I give a neutral eyebrow raise. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I guess part of that is that you are getting metabolites from these foods as well. But yeah, 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 sure. Okay, the metabolites are in the beer. Yeah, but you're also one of those metabolites is alcohol, which we do know has like effects on your liver negatively. So, you know, moderation, fun, you know, just do whatever you want. Just don't like say that it's healthy because it's a fermented food. That is not, I don't think, a takeaway that should be should be had from this paper. Yeah, that's totally fair. I also wanted to add to your comment about the alternative treatment that I think it's important to note that fermented foods shouldn't be a substitute for going to see a doctor, that maybe in the future they'll be a good uh, complement to uh, typical treatment, but um, it, they're not a cure on their own. Yes, 100%. Yeah, I know. I have, I've had a lot of people telling me that they hate fermented foods after this. And I hear you, that's, yes, this is not a proxy for a prescription. You know, if you're having gut-related problems or you're having inflammation-related problems, this is, you know, at its core, an academic paper and not a medical consultation. So definitely talk to your doctor if you're having serious problems. It's possible now that they will, you know, recommend fermented foods, uh, but that's kind of where this where this study lies. Like you know, health professionals and other academics will read this paper, other things will spin off of it. So what are you working on now? I recently graduated from Sonnenberg Lab and Aliza, 
is taking over fermented foods as the true <laughs> fermented foods expert. Um, so I'm very excited about this podcast and for you to get into, you know, the nitty gritty about what makes fermented foods so special, not just at, you know, a health standpoint, but also from the cultural standpoint, because it's such a rich area of like tradition in so many different, in so many different like countries. So I think from that standpoint, I'm really, really interested in fermented foods from a number of different angles. I am not currently working on fermented foods other than just eating them in my home kitchen. Um, I moved to, or I, I started a company, um, as Aliza mentioned in the in the intro, Interface Biosciences, which is focusing on more of the treatment side of things as opposed to the specific dietary intervention for preventative medicine idea. Um, so if it's not, you know, I'm a little biased to saying that the metabolites are what's, what's important uh, because my company is based on leveraging these metabolites for treatment of inflammatory disease. So this isn't just eating kimchi, but it's like finding the element of kimchi that's important and turning that into a traditional drug that would go through pharmaceutical pipelines, go through FDA so that it can be used to treat people with IBS, IBD, more serious, um, you know, more serious on the disease spectrum. Because like you said before, you're right. A lot of people that have IBS, IBD eat fermented foods and it irritates their gut. Um, there is something there is something in fermented foods that decreases inflammation. Um, we just need to, you know, understand the molecular mechanism of it more so it can be used as a drug. And so that's what the company is, is focused on, uh, leveraging the microbiome uh, for treatment of inflammatory diseases through traditional pharmaceutical pipelines. Uh, so that's what I'm working on now. I'm still very interested in fermented foods as a whole. Again, like I'm very, um, you know, very excited about the magic of it, where it's going to go. The field is absolutely booming right now. And so I, I'm really hoping that it doesn't turn into like a bougie boutique product that only, you know, that is only available to a subset of people that, you know, are financially well enough, well enough off to, to afford it. Um, one of the great things about fermented foods is that they propagate themselves. So, you know, if you've ever, you know, if you went through the sourdough pandemic phase of having a starter and then giving it to friends. You can do that with kombucha. You can do that with kefir grains. Like it, I think the element of community in inherent to fermented foods is kind of what made them so popular throughout history. You know, you're able to use a mead stick throughout your family generation and create a ferment, you know, a ferment that, that goes through, through generations. I think that's so incredibly fascinating. So there's a lot to dive into it. I don't know where the field is going to head, but I think the next five, 10 years will really define who fermented foods are for, what they're used primarily for, and like where the, where the culture of it will go. Great. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Hannah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to see where, who else is on your podcast.